Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Today's episode is very special because I attempt to do one of the most difficult things in an audio medium, and that is talk about a visual medium. I've had artists on the show before, uh, so of course this episode also has an accompanying Pinterest page where we talk about all the different pieces of art we're going to talk about, and there's going to be plenty. So who am I talking about? Probably, and this is no hyperbole, one of the most influential artists that I've ever seen and well, they may not be saying much. I'm a cultured guy, but I haven't traveled the world. But just the concept of what he does is, I hopefully will blow you away. I'm talking about Dick Termis and his Termospheres. And basically, what this guy did is he gave up 2D canvas based painting back in 1969. Forget that crap. That's the VHS of visual mediums. He took this into a whole new level, basically, the virtual reality. Of painting, and that is taking everything he sees around him, not just what's in front of his face, not just a panoramic, up, down, north, south, east, and west, captures everything and puts it on the surface of a sphere, and that is the termosphere, and that is not the only thing he has named after him. That's how influential he was. Blew my mind, and I hope the concept does too. Again, check out the Pinterest page so you can follow along as we go through this, uh, but let's get into this. First of all, what you do is amazing, by the way. I don't know if I got to tell you that in person. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time like looking, researching. Uh, you're pretty influential, man. You're a pretty kind of a yeah, easygoing, relaxed kind of guy. You're not a diva like a lot of artists who have kind of paved the way for others or doing something avant-garde or doing something that no one else has ever done. A genius is what I'm trying to say, Dick. Oh, thank you. How, how do you go about having that attitude? Don't you want to be like a little bit like Andy Warhol or anything? <laughs> no, I've never had any desire. I've never never liked that type of a person, you know? <laughs> yes. And I, I figure you can do, you can do uh, very strange things. And it's like Bucky Fuller one time said that he thought that he got a lot further because he wore a suit and tie and short hair and all of that. And he says, I, I do enough weird stuff without having to look weird, too. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> guess I've kind of taken that, uh, although I don't look necessarily straight either, but um, I've always looked about the same way, except I'm older. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, this is kind of an interesting conversation because when it comes to, because I work in entertainment, and so when it comes to people who are kind of, if they're weird mentally, right? Like if they, and by weird, I mean just think differently than other people. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to, that tends to show on the outside. And it could be just a show, like they could just be doing it um, for a show, or it could represent like the chaos that goes on in their head. And I think it's, I think it's more strange to see an artist wearing a suit and tie and wearing their hair short than it would be to see one wearing like their pants for arms, you know what I mean? Like for a shirt. Right, right, yeah. No, I, I agree, I, although I, I, I don't necessarily look straight at all. I, I try and, you know, I, I, my friends are very normal people, you know, and I, I enjoy connecting with, uh, I think it's a way, like when you play my game, it's like baseball and you're running to second, third base, now and then you want to come back and touch home, you know, to make <laughs> sure you... <laughs> keep sure. yourself stable because I, I stretch out quite a ways sometimes. Well, so, so now you, because you kind of were starting to do this. We're going to talk about the termospheres in a second, but you really kind of got into art and really like hit a stride in the 60s. Uh, yeah. So it is kind of surprising that you aren't into all that crazy. Was there any kind of, you know, were you, were you involved in that era? Was there any, uh, is any of your brilliant ideas, are they drug influenced at all, or did this all just come no. straight out of the brain? No. That's a question that I get asked a lot. No, I'm not not even a touch of uh, 
maybe a few beers. That's about that's, <laughs> that's about as far off as I get. But I went to you know Otis Art Institute in L.A. and it was during wild times. I mean, it was in the definitely uh, late late '60s and early '70s. And uh, no, I I I the problem I saw with that was a lot of people that were at the school with me were like into drugs and stuff and i i could see the kind of work they were doing and i was kind of going you know they may think this is cool but i don't see anything going on there so that was my feeling is that what you get into drugs you start to think you're doing really great but it doesn't mean you are and i i i felt like you know i worked every day worked very hard at, at my field and I, I got, you know, top, I got uh, three different semesters paid for by the school out of the four and, and all of that because they knew I had a good work ethic and I was doing stuff that they didn't understand what it was. Right. And, uh, but a lot of the other people would come back and two days before graduation, they'd whip out all this stuff and the instructors a lot of times didn't know what to do with it, so they passed them, and you kind of go, whoa, you know. And I just I didn't uh, think that was uh, what I wanted to do with my life anyway. No, I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, it's it, art's one of those really strange things. It's, fun, it's, it's, it's funny to talk about, and even when you talk to educated people who, you know, on, on the history of art, and especially with modern art, you know, I've had this conversation with several people, and the extreme is, well, everything's art, you know? And so it's, I don't know how teachers don't pass people who are there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, really, and I'm not trying to be, like, facetious no, at all. No, it's, it's just, it's, it's strange to me. It's tricky. Well, and that's the the cool part of the arts, and it's the bad part of the arts. You know, it makes it very hard to grade, but we have to have a place in society where people get to explore things that we don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard for an instructor to come in and pretend like they know what somebody else is thinking. And sometimes right. that's a Van Gogh person, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't get accepted very well either, and now everybody, you know, worships him. So, right. yeah, it's, it's a tricky field, but that's, that's how it's designed. Well, no, I got to. I mean, the good thing about you is that you didn't have to cut off your ear, and you were popular and extremely famous for what you do during your time. So that's good. I mean, you got to enjoy that. Yeah, it is. It's been very, very fun. Very so, fun. Now, and in living here in South Dakota too, you know, I kind of picked the probably the worst place I could be to get well known, but the internet came in, and yep. the, as you know, that's kind of a nice thing to. Yeah. That have happened. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it is a very strange place that you want to live, but um, but nonetheless, that's how good what you do, um, what it is. And going back to the art thing, is what's amazing about the things that you do is you can explain why they're good. You know, like you there's because you kind of have art and math and science all rolled into one. But let's talk about let's define what you do first for because when you talk uh, you know when I have artists on the show it's difficult to really talk without having because it's a visual medium and so obviously this is an audio medium so first right, of all I'd right. recommend everyone listening to go to the website fascinatingnouns.com uh, I've got tons of pictures up uh, you and I did some videos those are on the YouTube link you have your own YouTube channel check that out if you want to see what these do and see these things in action. So I'm gonna get. So we're talking about termospheres, and I got to tell you, you got a little bit of diva in you because not only is termospheres a play on your name, termos, and what you paint on spheres, but it's also a registered trademark. What do you say about that, Dick? Well, it takes a little work to get a trademark, yes, but yeah, I I felt I had to do that because there was some. I was getting ripped off a little bit in in China. <laughs> I imagine that. And, you know, some of, when you go to Thermospheres, uh, some Chinese products pop up, and I thought, well, you know, not that they listen to us anyway over there, but uh, I thought it might be important to get it, get it copyrighted. I didn't think I needed to worry about it, because it's not a word like anybody else would use. It's right. my last name and, and then what I paint on. <laughs> but um, right. so anyway, we we did get the the trademark and and um, 
How did you find that out? That's interesting. Oh, I, but I got I got all kinds of ways, Dick. I got I, I research everything. Well, I like very... what I like is not so much that it's a trademark, but I love that it's named after you. That's what I mean. You got a little bit of diva in you. You know what I mean? You got a little yeah. bit of that Andy Warhol in you. Oh yeah, there's there's got to be a little ego in everybody. You of know? course, of course. <laughs> Uh, so now let's. I'm going to explain a termosphere, and then you're going to explain it. This is the okay. game we're going to play. So yeah, this will be interesting. I'm going to I'm going to describe it um, kind of at a first grade level. So basically, okay. this is a globe with a 360 degree perspective painting on the globe. So it's actually about the size of a globe. There's a painting on the entire surface. That's one continuous picture, and you typically hang these from a motor and then they spin uh, typically clockwise to show you the entirety of what you've drawn. Uh, how's that for an encapsulation in three seconds? Well, that's not bad. Thank not you very much. Bad. Now, we yeah. both know there's a lot more to it than that because you've got six-point perspective, which is something that you've pioneered. There's the behind-the-scenes. So give me the behind-the-scenes on this. Well, I'll give you the, my simplest version, too is what I tell people is imagine you're inside a transparent ball and you find a like an interesting a great cathedral or something. You go inside the cathedral with this transparent ball on your head and you find the spot that shows uh, interesting stuff in all directions. And when I talk all directions, I mean up, down, and all around, not just a, a panoramic like we normally see and ignoring the top and the bottom. And then you take your paints in there with you and get the paints inside and you copy everything you see outside the ball onto the inside surface of the ball. And as soon as you get it all totally covered, you move to the outside of the ball to see what you were, what you had painted from the inside. And that's basically what I do, but I do it all on the outside of the ball. So I just conceive it with that kind of thinking. Hmm. And that will give you that will give you the six point perspective without you even knowing you're getting it. So now, that, you're that sure there weren't any drugs involved in the concept behind this cuz that sounds pretty trippy, <laughs> Dick. <laughs> well, no, that's that's you know, I I'll have to tell you a little story that when I was going to art school in LA and I was painting on these we had <clears throat> the art school was paid for by the county, so that required us to keep the doors open so anybody in the county could walk into our studios and look at what we were doing. And I remember you'd get used to not talking to people or you never got anything done. You just worked kind of like a monkey in a cage type thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> people would be walking by you looking at you. And this one guy stopped, very, very hippie-like, and was looking at uh, one piece and just stood there and stared at it for like 30 minutes. I mean, it got to where I, I was going to go, uh, I really need to say something. It was snapping in front of his eyes, yeah. And so I finally, I, I said, um, and stupidly, I said, I often wondered what these would look like if a person were on drugs. Yeah. And I thought, oh, why did you say that? That yeah. was a terrible thing to say. And he, he just, continued to look at the ball and then slowly he turned to me he says hey man you don't need drugs for this stuff this stuff is drugs <laughs> and I thought, hey that is such a nice compliment <laughs> after the terrible thing i just said to him you know yeah that belongs on a t-shirt well you've been i forgot to mention this but you've been called the world's leading spherical artist um, so you are on top of the world, man. There's no one doing this thing. You're it. So you're the only one who can explain it. Well, yeah. I th you know, there's been people that have played off of it. It isn't like I've kept anything a secret, and I have actually have done workshops on it, and, and I uh, have taught students this system, and I've gotten them to where they can do it, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it, but I don't, there isn't anybody out there doing it ahead of me. I know that. Right. And uh, and it's it's too cool of an idea to just totally keep secret. So I like to I like to share it as much as I can with people. So now just just to go back to the termosphere, because I wanted I wanted to break this down a little bit. So the key to this whole thing 
is the six-point perspective. Now, I'm going right. to break it down in the easiest way after watching a lot of your videos explaining it. I'm um, going to try to break this down easily. So it's basically you are – it's a 3D rendering. So everyone has to get out of this 2D world of paint on a canvas and think in three dimensions. Right. So it's basically you're painting what's in front of you, what's to the left of you, what's to the right of you, and what's directly behind you, north, south, east, and west essentially, what's above you, and what's below you. And those are your six points. And then they all right. combine into one picture. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Now, here's, yeah. the, here's the one thing that, that kind of tripped me up when I was trying to visualize how you do this. And I'm really just kind of stepping into the mind of, of a genius. So forgive me if I lose my way. But if, if – so if you're painting all this stuff, what's around you, but what you're the, – the final piece is a 3D sphere, right? So essentially you see the world in concave. Right, so it's all mm -hmm. got an inward slope, but the final product is convex. How? What's the translation from from one to the other? Because you know, because if you're in the middle of the art, and you're, what the final art piece is you separate and from the art, how does how does that translation happen? Well, the you know, like yeah, the concept is as though I'm on the inside. But I, of course, do all the painting on the outside. So I've set up a, a geometrical system, uh, which is, if you know your polyhedron, it's the vertices of an octahedron, which is eight, eight equilateral triangles. Uh, if you were to put that on a ball, you would have six vertices. And that's how I, that's how I actually put the six equal distant points. So I always start with six equal distant points on the ball however you get them on there is up to you you know but that's the mm -hmm. system i use is a geometrical system and uh so i put these six points on the ball and i know that the six points are and here's a nice simple way i actually did a video of this i think there's a youtube of this up where i'm i i was driving along and i saw this i crossed a railroad track and i over the road, and the road I was on, that I was driving on, went to infinity in front of me and went to infinity behind me. And then, of course, the railroad track crossing did the same thing. So I got out and took a video of this, and so I, I said, okay, here's a nice example of six-point perspective. See this railroad track vanishing off? It's very big where I'm standing on it. It goes to a point off to the distance. If you turn all the way around... It does the same thing the other way. If you then go back to the road that you're standing on, it goes to infinity to, let's say, the east and back to the west. So now you have four points around you. That's four of the six points that I use. And then right next to it is a telephone pole that's running up above your head. And it, if you follow it, it'll vanish to a point directly above your head. And it'll also vanish to a point directly below your feet. So there's your six points in a nice, simple way. That would be a, the simplest subject matter I could use in order to show this. But what's miraculous about it is when you set the six points up, I can go into any cathedral or any room, and, I, and no matter where I stand within that room, the six points will still all be equal points on the ball, and I can reconstruct, I, and I can find those points, which is interesting. I tell us to students that I'm talking perspective to, I say, I can close my eyes in a room and tell you where the six points are. And all you have to do is take a measuring device from your eye where you're standing and project it to the, the six planes around you, like, in other words, the six walls, the four walls, the ceiling, and the floor. If you project a line, the closest point to that wall is going to be where the vanishing point will be in that picture. And all the different walls will get set up. So you set it up that way to start with. You, you set up the basic cube of what could turn into Notre Dame Cathedral because it's based on a cube too. You find those six points, and then you start from there and you work your way out and everything uh, will just fit together perfectly. 
So, I mean, that's, that's what continues to excite me is that those six points, any cubicle building, you know, if you're in a, a um, dome, that doesn't work very well. But if you're in a cubicle space, which most 90% of the buildings that we construct are cubicle, uh, this system of perspective will lock it right onto a sphere perfectly. So I just, when I'm working on the outside of the ball, I'm imagining I'm on the inside. So I'm just changing my, <laughs> uh, this dyslexia comes in handy a lot with this too, yeah. where, where you uh, can flip-flop things. And I just imagine it's going concave when I'm working on the convex. Wow. And, you know, it's taken a long time to, to where it becomes very natural to me now. I mean, I don't hardly have to even think about it, but at, um, what, what was interesting is when I first started doing this, mostly I was making up stuff out of my head. So, and that's usually hard, uh, harder for an artist to make up the world. But then I decided I need to apply this to a real world. And, and I went into, I think I started with the rotunda in, in our Capitol building in Pier. And I went in and, and tried to capture that on the ball. And I sort of, at a certain point, I just dropped to my knees almost and said, how do you do this? I, I was just like, I was totally confused. Because here I'm painting an image on the ball that I'm looking at in front of me. And then I'm turning the ball thinking that I would turn it a little bit and then capture the next thing. And it was all backwards from how you typically think. So I had to actually move the ball more than you would think you would have to and, and, and then turn your body to look at the next scene. And then you'd, you'd walk around the ball a little bit more to look at the next scene, turn the ball to catch up with you. And it, it was just like I, I really did finally have to just sit down a little bit and think about what is it I'm, what's different about this than what I've just been making up and putting on the ball. So it was it was quite a fascinating thing because uh, it was much harder to capture a real world than in my own head making it up you know right like you went from like salvador dali on one extreme to <laughs> yeah. I, I mean essentially right so just making up a world to kind of more photographs on a globe that you're painting oh yeah i mean yeah yeah i i mean uh and making up stuff is so natural to me i mean i can i love to make up uh, creatures and I love to make up uh, uh, all that stuff, but it it's so natural to me that it's actually easier than looking at a scene and trying to copy the real scene. But I got into uh, once I got into that, it also involved lots of traveling, and I got to go to or my wife and I we went to Istanbul and and I did the Hagia Sophia over there and the Blue Mosque from the inside. And we went to uh, England, and I did the Stonehenge, which is a perfect sphere thing, and the uh, Shakespeare's Globe Theater. Well, that's a cylinder sort of shaped building. And uh, went to Paris and did Notre Dame Cathedral and Saint-Chapelle and the Paris Opera. And, and so we got a lot of neat traveling in and tax write-off on everything, you know, because nice. we <laughs> produce all this stuff when I got back home. Sure. And just... Just it turned into a really wonderful uh, experience. Just trying to capture. Well, my philosophy on on capturing those famous buildings was they're already beautiful. All I had to do is just recapture them on a sphere, and I was probably going to have something pretty neat. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I knew that the architects had already figured out the beauty end of it. I just had to find the right spot within the building to capture that because it's one point in space is what i get to capture and the computer people are doing a lot of that plus motion even now so i mean they're they've moved moved by a lot of my stuff already uh if you just think about it some of the games you play Mm -hmm. the perspective is right when you're looking at it and you can move through the buildings and the perspective shifts so they're they're doing some amazing stuff with perspective there too well and the key i mean that's really the key word to what you do is everything's about perspective 
Because it kind of, when you're looking, I mean, a couple of your pieces, I think it's um, fish eye view. Is that the one where you're like basically in a fishbowl looking out as it spins right. around? Which yeah. kind of, you know, you're in the, you're in the perspective of, of a fish looking out of a fishbowl. Um, which kind of changes perspective. And you've worked with this so much that you actually have an optical illusion named after you called the Termes illusion. Uh, so you, you really are kind of a pioneer when it comes to optic, when it comes to perspective and all that stuff. Um, let's talk about that really quickly since I touched on it. Tell me about the Termes uh, optical illusion. Okay, well, when you... Uh, actually, what, what happened was, I mean, I... When I was at graduate school at, in, in Los Angeles, working on my MFA, I, was, I, was, uh, I had hit on the idea at the University of Wyoming, but I continued to go work on it at, when I moved to uh, L.A. for another two years for my MFA. And one of, the, one of the little spheres, I was sitting one evening quite late looking at this uh, little sphere, and I spun it. And all of a sudden, I noticed it looked like it dished in on me, mm. and it, it, like it went concave on me instead of convex. And I went, "Whoa, what is that all about?" And and like I say, I didn't use any drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I did it a couple more times, and I, I, I it kept happening and happening. So the next day, it was kind of interesting because I grabbed a couple of my fellow students and said, "Come over here and look at this," and I spun it and. They didn't see anything, and I thought, well, huh, I guess maybe it's just something in my head, and I, so anyway, they, they left me kind of laughing at me and stuff, and, and uh, a couple, three days later, uh, one of them came by and gave it a little spin, and he went, whoa, and I said, you saw it, right? He says, yes, I did, and so anyway, I started to write my thesis combining not only the thermosphere six-point perspective, but I called it the hole and spaceness of the sphere when it's in motion. And so I tried to analyze what makes a ball look like a hole. And it's a lot of the same things that happen when you try and make a painting look like it has dimension, like you go back in space. So it's like, you know, lots of things with color that you can do to help make this happen with hot colors on the bottom and the top of the ball and cool colors in the middle, and it'll help make that pop backwards. A lot of things with blurry lines on the, on the middle and, and sharper lines on the top and the bottom. But the main thing seemed to be the perspective itself. The perspective, when you, if you think about the, the perspective I'm using, it's like uh, you're, it works as a concave, uh, if you're inside of a ball, it looks normal. That's exactly how we see the world is as though it's on the concave, as though it's all the way around us. Mm-hmm. If I put it on the outside of the ball, your mind would rather have it go concave than be convex because that's the normal. Mm-hmm. And optical illusions always want to grab what is normal. That's where the optical illusions come from is you take something normal and you push it away from that normal far enough to where it isn't that same normal and your mind wants to push it back there all the time because that's what we're used to seeing it this way. And the concave is the normal. So when, the, when I paint uh, Notre Dame Cathedral on the outside of a ball and you look at it when it's turning and it helps the motion and makes a big difference in it. If it's turning about 3 RPMs, it, that's when it'll flip on you, and most people will see it. Uh, and if they don't, I have them close one eye and look at it, and that seems to get rid of a little bit of the resistance of the ballness, mm-hmm. and it looks <laughs> yeah. more like concaveness. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. I think it's mainly because we're used to it being concave in our normal world, and when I force you to see it convex, your mind takes it back and when it does it, the ball turns into a hole <laughs> right. and no nobody had played with that uh, uh, there's a psychologist that came by the place and i had a ball outside a six foot one that lit up at night and we were actually having a party at the house and uh, he came and knocked on the door and he wondered 
who created that piece out in the yard? And I said, well, that's one of mine. And he says, do you know that it flips into this strange sort of illusion? I said, yeah, I, I do. He says, I'm going to call you up and, and get an appointment with you. And he ended up doing a major paper on that illusion. And um, he took uh, a couple of spheres to his class, and they studied the spheres, uh, whether they were realistic or whether they were um, like geometrical, that the realism worked best. Uh, about a 3 RPM worked better than a slow, like 1 RPM turning. And the students, like 70 of them, did a test uh, with their own minds on it. And he wrote this whole paper on it, and he started calling it the Thermos Illusion. So that was that was pretty cool. It was, uh, <laughs> that is pretty cool. It came out of it, you know. Well, I, you know, one of the things that kind of amazes me, not only just talking with you, but looking at the things that you've done, is that there's there's... It's almost like a mathematical equation for art. Now, you're talking to a guy who's not particularly artistic, but I'm extremely logical. So when you start talking about geometry and you're essentially breaking down this you know, paradigm-shattering concept that you created and you're breaking it down into um, geometry, I think to myself, hey, I could totally do that. I mean, you're talking about it in the exact amount of you know, revolutions per minute that this thing requires to activate an illusion. Um, how, so how does your mind exactly work like that? Is it does it go with the logical first and then the art follows, or do you have this artistic idea and then try to break it down into its fundamental components? I probably do it both ways. Uh, you know, sometimes I I, I really enjoy. Uh, you know, I was really bad at geometry and math both in school. Wow! In fact, they wouldn't even let me take advanced stuff of any kind, but. One of the things that I found myself quite skillful at is patterns, discovering patterns within things and looking at nature or whatever and figuring out the system of how a plant is put together and what that, those different patterns are. So, I mean, I kind of came through the back door into geometry, but I use a lot of geometry now, but it's... it's um, hand-done kind of geometry and maybe compasses and rulers kinds of geometries. Uh, but a lot of times I'll start with, uh, and spherical geometries, of course, are totally different than Euclidean flat geometries. Um, and I'll start with all the, and, and one of the things that was fascinating to me is I was playing with some geometrical systems on the flat surface before I hit on the sphere idea. And so right away I wanted to look at the sphere and see, okay, what's different here? And I realized, wow, everything is different. When you start playing with geometrical systems on a ball versus the flat, it's like uh, a whole new uh, can of worms, <laughs> you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of times I will start with, um, with the geometry on the ball, and then it'll, it'll take me, it'll get, get me started with an idea, and and then it gr gradually grows into something. Sometimes a uh, few pieces, I just leave the pure geometry because it's so beautiful. I just think, you know, I can't, I can't beat how this geometry works. It's cool enough in its own. A lot of times, it'll I'll take it and push it in and make the geometry turn into realistic worlds, but they have to conform to the geometrical pattern or system. A lot of times I start with, like, grids, and I, a grid that's very coming out of real geometry, solid geometry stuff on the sphere, and then I'll, and I'll make, like, one piece I'd call uh, uh, Try Every Angle. It's a piece that's, <clears throat> that I put 5,210 triangles on the ball to first, and that, that's, it's breaking down the uh, icosahedron, which is, 20 equilateral triangles. If you break the triangles down more and more and more and you get to 5,210 uh, triangles on the ball, then I made myself look at those triangles and find out how many tessellating patterns, tight-fitting patterns, could come out of it. Well, the triangle itself is tight-fitting. Two of them together give you a, a, a diamond shape. That's tight-fitting. And you jump to, there's more like chevron patterns, and then you get to the hexagon pattern. So I first I explored all of those kinds of things. 
and made that be the landscape bottom of the sphere. And then uh, I made the people that were in the piece all be trying, come out of triangles too. So, and I probably made 30, 40 sketches of people that were built out of triangles. And then the coolest ones I put into this piece. And so, I mean, the whole piece is based on geometry and it's very similar to, I've done other pieces where I just kind of throw paint on the ball and let it turn into like an abstract expressionistic sort of looking thing. Mm -hmm. And it's those beautiful colors and nice patterns and designs, but no realism at all. And then I'll sit with it in my lap after it's dry and, and try and find the realism in it. It's like looking at clouds and seeing strange things in clouds, you know. Sure. But I do that on that piece. I do the same thing with the geometry. When you look at geometrical patterns, you can, if you take to it with your mind uh, strange insects, you'll start seeing insects in those patterns. The same way you would see them in looking at the organic uh, abstract expressionistic thing. You can take to it whatever you want the theme to be, and that's what seems to appear, <laughs> if you're a strange brain like mine, probably. Sure, right, right. I, you said it, not me, right. Uh-huh. But anyway, so a lot of stuff, actually, uh, if you look through my collection of spheres, you can see it's grown out of a geometrical system. And it's just like I'm letting my mind play. If people ask me, so what does that mean? A lot of times I don't have a clue. I just know that this is where it took me. So it seems like there's... And when, you know, another interesting phenomena about painting, and I presume all artists are like this, when they get done with a piece, it seems like it's always existed. I don't know what that's about, but I wanted okay. to just throw that at you, because it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, I didn't do that. It's always been there, you know? When, when you really get it all done. Do you know what I'm talking about with that? You probably find that with your work, too, a bit. Yeah, man, I feel like this interview's always existed and yet never existed all at the same time. It's meta, man. It'll, it'll blow your mind up. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to think about that stuff too much. No, definitely not. <laughs> you could end up in a little happy home somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, as we're talking about this, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that you, that, you came, that you went to this fear. Because as we talked about earlier and as you kind of mentioned with you know, with this, with the optical illusion that's created, you're basically taking a concave world and making it convex. I'm surprised that you haven't created any spheres that you can walk into and then the pictures on the inside of the sphere or like, like painting inside of large helmets that you like put on your head so that you're actually right. seeing the perspective that you originally were painting in instead of having to translate it to a different world, you know? Well, here, here's my answer to that. Okay. Uh, years ago when I was uh, at University of Wyoming under a, an instructor called Victor Flack was his name, um, I, he, he actually told me one time that one of his students later called my piece the Thermosphere. He says, so that's your name. <laughs> I said, mm -hmm. oh, that's a cool name. You know, but <clears throat> anyway, when he, uh, somebody suggested that idea that you just said, and he said, no, I think Termas is doing it right. And he says, the reason, the reason that's the right way to do it is that it, in art, you don't want to do stuff the way we always see it done. I mean, the way, we, the way nature gives it to us. You want to do something that makes it a challenge. Like, in other words, the real world is being on the concave, in my mind. If, and, and if I were to just go inside of a ball and recreate it around you, it would be like a normal experience. I make people see it in a non-normal way. And they have, their minds have to jar that around to reverse it. And so when they get done looking at my work, hopefully, this is my hope, they'll walk outside and see the environments around us in a totally different way from that point on. So it's making, art is making us change our, shifting our minds to looking at things in a different way. And so the convex, that makes you do that. The concave 
would be like the normal way we see things. So right. that's <laughs> that's what uh, that's what I think is what I'm doing anyway. So that's a nice way of saying thanks for the suggestion, but that's a very pedestrian way of looking at the world. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of that. that that's, that is you're you're connecting properly with the normal world, but right. the art, artist should make people stretch their minds. Sure. Well, you know what's interesting, and you you kind of made this connection earlier, is that that's kind of what's going on with VR right now. Is essentially it's recreating a world that you're looking around in. You know, because every one of those worlds is hand created. So it's essentially what you're what you're saying is that's a replication of reality, and you're taking it a step further and recreating it. By but altering it a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's you know all the stuff you're doing is is very relevant now. I mean, it's it's the the concepts behind it are are being used on, on the highest levels of of art, especially with video games. It's pretty interesting. It uh, is, yeah. I I I really I feel it ties to to my work, whether they, they ever saw it or not. I don't know, but their their minds certainly have moved. From that kind of my kind of thinking, you yeah. know, definitely, it's, it's like you know, uh, years ago I got a a patent on a process in photography that I called the total photograph, and the total photograph was what I would do is I would take uh, all the regular polyhedron I made wooden blocks of, but the one I ended up using the most was the dodecahedron, which is twelve pentagons. So I made a wooden block of a dodecahedron, mounted it to my tripod, and then I would go into, like, famous buildings or whatever, find the perfect spot I felt you could see everything the best from, and I'd mount my camera on each one of those faces and shoot a picture off and from a 90-degree angle off of those planes of the dodecahedron in 12 different directions, take those pictures, and then I would find the center of the picture and I knew that would be the center of the pentagons because I'd get a square picture back find the center of the square and I knew that was the center of the pentagon and then I would pull the two picture two pictures that were adjacent images together until I could describe exactly where they connect with each other mm -hmm. and I would know where that where that point was of the edge of the pentagon and I'd cut out then I could make a template put it down of the Pentagon and cut out all the squares in the Pentagons, and they'd all fit together. The image fit in all directions that way. Wow. And so, but now the computers have, you know, figured that out, you know, but I was really pleased. Nobody had done that. You know, this was probably 30 years ago, and, and nobody had really done that. I fought, like, Disney World, and I fought some... In Tokyo, there is a dome on the inside. It's kind of like what you're talking images on the inside of a dome that you could feel the environments from. And But this was on the outside, and it was a complete sphere picture. But now the computers do that really well. You're doing you know, the analog I, version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of just... Um, least broke the ice, you know. <laughs> you were 30 years ahead of the time. You were 30 years ahead of computers, man. Well, yeah, I didn't know they were going to come along and whip me, you know, like this, but that's <laughs> all right. They they actually have done wondrous things for me. I can take, uh, now what we do is we make virtual spheres of my spheres, and then we can, we can either, we can flatten those out in the computer, and then we can actually reproduce the spheres, or we can turn them into all kinds of different polyhedron. And so, I mean, now the computer is just helping me to get uh, all kinds of different things for my gallery, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, get the price range down where people can afford to buy things. Right. I mean, you were, you were ahead of the computer. I mean, the day of the human is over. The day of the computer is, is upon us. Oh, um, boy. And you've, and you've embraced it. I, I respect that. Um, oh, but, yeah. But let's take a step back. Let's continue this analog conversation. Because you started your career painting in 2D on canvases. So, right. first of all, first question is, do any of these still exist, and do you still do it? And the third question is, so that's really two questions. The third question is, do you still do it, or is that kind of like the VHS of painting? Yeah, very much. 
I don't. I don't do flat. I when I hit on the sphere in it's it actually was in the year of sixty eight sixty nine school year at Wyoming. I don't know exactly what part of that year I hit on it, but this this year, if it's sixty eight, would it be fifty years that I've been painting on Holy a sphere. God. Hey, <laughs> that's, that's it. Fifty crazy. years. Look at that. We're we're talking your fifty year anniversary. Um, yes, it is. Now, yeah. I'm going to ask you a controversial question here, Dick. I'm glad you brought that up. So I'm going to cut in here. I'm going to ask you a controversial question. Okay. How did you come up with this fear? Did you come up with it yourself, or did someone suggest it to you? Loaded question. Uh, no, no. I Well, it was it, it was kind of complicated. I, As it was, I it was it complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's uh, the way I remember it is I was teaching uh, for for four years ahead of going back to graduate school uh-huh. in uh, Klamath Falls, Oregon, and Sheridan, Wyoming. And one of the things I had a lot of good luck with was teaching perspective to my students. And I didn't have the concept of six-point at that time, but I get, was all the way to four-point, which is curved line perspective on the flat. And I got really good results from I had great students, and they just produced really great stuff. And so when I went back to graduate school, I was in a class where I, um, we had to present a direction that we wanted to, like, spend your life doing, you know, <laughs> yeah. and we had to explain it to the rest of the class, and they would right. give you input back. Right. And I decided, well, I'm going to just, I'm going to push this idea of perspective, and I, I presented, you know, four, and I was kind of messing around with a five-point on the flat surface, which is like a fisheye lens picture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like what a camera would give you in a fisheye. And one of the students suggested to me at that point that that really looked like a ball, didn't it? And it kind of triggered in my head. I said, you know, what if I took this five-point perspective, which has five, four points around the outside of a circle and one in the center, and then put another point on it on the back side because I knew I was getting a half a picture with the five point and if I could put another point on the back side of a ball what would that do and so it was kind of from that that I went to I tried a couple of balls and they fit on the ball like a charm I mean I was just blown away but I presumed that you know this this has got to have been done by lots of people this is this is too simple, you know? Right. And, uh, and then I started looking around and couldn't see anybody had done anything like that. And I, I finally did find a guy in, in France, Albert Flocone, that had done a sphere the same year I hit on this. This was years later. I, I had a Bruno Ernst, who wrote the really good book on M.C. Escher, um, wrote to me and said, you need to get a hold of uh, Albert Flocone, he's like 85, and and we were going to France anyway, so we actually looked him up, and I spent quite a bit of time with him, and he really understood the perspective system too. But he'd done one ball and went back to the flat surface mm. because he was a printmaker. He didn't know what to do with the ball. Right. But he said, I learned a lot. A lot of my ideas from that point on had to do with the understanding of the spherical idea. And so, you know, even though I'd never met the guy until I was into the sphere for like a dozen years, but he was like, uh, he, he was like a kin spirit to me because he absolutely understood why I was excited about what I was doing. And he had me give a lecture at Beaux Arts in Paris, which is a famous art school that he taught at, architecture and art. And uh, I think Seurat, George Seurat, went to school there so i'd had some famous people Mm -hmm. and uh so but that's the kind of the story of where it all comes from and and also a lot of input from uh fellow students and the instructor uh victor flack in that class well now now, hold on do you now you're getting away from the i want to i'm going to nail you to the wall on this dick so do you remember the name of the student who said hey your pictures would look great on a sphere the guy who was responsible for your entire career. Yeah. And yeah, then really. lost no, to your <laughs> lost I don't history. remember. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Yes. But you didn't know you had anything yet. You it know? is terrible, it like Dick. One of those flippant ideas that just looks... <laughs> you know, he, didn't, he just said that looks like a ball. That 
the, but that you know, was it, man. But that I changed mean, your life. That changed but, the, that so, changed history. That changed art as we know it. That that little yeah. flippant comment that this yep. unknown man, this man lost to history. Yep, yep, that's right, that's right, and that that's where most ideas happen, just like that. I From mean, a lot of people else. you hear mm-hmm. them walking down the street and seeing the dog jumping over the top of a cat, and they <laughs> <laughs> they they to them it just was what their mind needed to make sense out of a concept. Right? That's true. No, it happens all the time. Um, so with, in the era of 3d printing, cause you're talking about how kind of one of the things that I imagine that you struggle with is that you can't like most artists when they draw and this, this is, I'm talking 2d here, man. So this is, you know, old technology, yeah. but with your brand new 3d visualization of art, it's hard to reproduce that. You know, so so what have you done to kind of tackle that? Otherwise, your your art is only seen by the elites. What about the common man who needs to have their mind blown? What what have you done to make your art accessible? Okay, well, there's a couple couple directions. You know, to start with, I actually went to Replogo Globe Company in Chicago and sat down with the vice president to to see um, what what they could do. Well, it ended up. Uh, he said, well, you'd have to produce about 10,000 of these before we'd even consider it. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, 10,000? Where would I put 10,000 of these? And I don't even know if they'll <laughs> sell, you know. Right. So, you know, it, but they were like the big globe company. And so I realized that I needed to find a globe company. And then another one popped up called Spherical Concepts that was out of Philadelphia. and But they were going to uh, Denver to a conference, and I met met up with them there and talked to them about reproducing my work. And they were more into silk screening on the flat and mm-hmm. then blowing it up into hemispheres and sticking them back together. Mm-hmm. And down the line, I ended up using um, uh, this guy that is, is still tied to that concept of, of making globes. And uh, they they can do stuff, but mostly... You know, I found the black and white works the best with them. Getting into color is a little complicated with uh, silkscreen. But then we came up with this company called Mova, M-O-V-A, mm-hmm. uh, and they make uh, they had a, a great concept in motion. All of my spheres hang from ceiling motors and rotate. So I was in Atlanta, Georgia. At a, I was having a show there, and a guy came in with a little... These, this tiny little five-inch globe and set it down on the table, and it spun. It continued to spin and spin. And I finally got down on my knees and was looking at it, and this guy came up to me. He says, did you paint the globes in here? I said, yes. And he says, here's his address. This inventor, he's got this concept. He doesn't know what to do with it, and you need motion. He needs art, you know. Mm-hmm. So we tied together that way, and they they had figured out how to reproduce the globe quite well with like a one seam in the middle. But it was done through the computer, so it was really right on the money. Right. It really fit well together. So they're the guys that that solar system that actually has made my art gallery really work quite well because it sells so well. Right. Um, because of his motion and my art tied together, it seems like it was perfect. And then be- years ago, before I hit on a good way to reproduce the spheres, I started doing some polyhedron because polyhedron are easy, they're flat to start with, and you can fold them up into a 3D uh, uh, object. And I so I actually started with dodecahedrons, penny. Uh, uh, tetrahedrons, uh, octahedrons, and those kinds of polyhedron shapes, and did paintings on them with six-point perspective, because I wanted to get the perspective out there one way or another. And as I was, I, I started off doing it because I just thought it would be great for reproduction and something to sell people, you know, to, mm-hmm. so I could stay in the studio. Well, that's one of the things artists have to do is figure out how do you make enough money so you get to keep doing art and so that was my objective but what i found out when i started working on them that they did they opened my mind in another whole category of of thinking because like that especially like the tetrahedron which is four equilateral triangles 
when you put it together um, uh, and you try and paint a complete room, I needed a six-point perspective in it. The only place I could find a sixness was in the center of an edge. So mm-hmm. I found the six edges, center of the edges, and had that the perspective system, and it worked like a charm. I mean, wow. it just fit perfect on it. So I really, really opened my mind to a whole bunch more of the geometrical systems that could work. So capitalism was the seed for your innovation. It was the beginning of it, you bet, yeah. Because and that's not- one of the things that, you know, one I think maybe separates me, too, is once I get a piece done, I feel like, you know, what can I do with this piece where it I, it could have a whole bunch of different categories of different people. When when they come into my gallery I and they really want to take something home with them, I, I want it. I want it to be there for them, you know, to, mm-hmm. like a dollar thing or a $5 or 20 or all the way up to some of my work is 25000 now. So, wow. I mean, it can, and once in a while they actually walk off with one of those, which wow. is really nice, you yeah. know. Your, your products span the socioeconomic spectrum is what you're saying. In, indeed, and you've got to make sure it does, you know. Yeah. Like I've had people that uh, own a piece and I always keep copyright on everything, but they own a piece and they, they say, well, we don't want anybody else to have images of it. And I tell them, do you think the Mona Lisa would be famous today if there weren't reproductions of it out there for people? If there were only one Mona Lisa out there? The only way your piece is going to become famous is the more people that have that image. It won't be like your image. Yours is the best one. It's the original but that's what's going to make it a famous piece is the more it's copied off and the more people would see it. So that's... Do people buy know, that? Do people buy that line? line? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also happen to believe it. So. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing because you sell the piece and then you still get to make money on it after you've sold it. I mean, it's brilliant. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I told you this before, I really think, you know, you have this kind of cool wall where you, you have all of your, it's basically like a mobile of ornaments is the best way to describe it. It's all these like Christmas ornaments, but they're, they all have your ideas on them. It's kind of like your idea wall. I'm yeah. telling you, reproductions on ornaments, it's the way to go, man. I know you kind of poo-pooed the idea, but I'm telling you, you're going to do this, you're going to make a million dollars, and much like the guy who introduced you to the sphere in the first place, I my brilliant idea will be lost to history. Um, but I, you know, I, I believe in it. The hard part of your idea, though, What's that? is finding somebody that can do that. Oh, the sphere yeah. is still very hard to reproduce, and to find a person that can make a small little ornament for you if anybody comes on your blog and has a clue how to do that, I will follow through with your idea very quickly. Okay, great. And I'll, I just 10%. Yeah. That's it. That's all I ask for. Uh, <laughs> it's just a little taste, Dick. Just a little taste of the action. Uh, <laughs> That's right. It's so, right. So now that we've talked about this, how can people find you, your gallery, um, so they can see what the heck we're talking about? Well, we're in Spearfish, South Dakota, in the northern Black Hills. It's a very vacation-y sort of area, even though it's in South Dakota. We, it's, it's like a very cool place, and we get a lot of tourists in here. This is where Mount Rushmore is, uh, and we have Crazy Horse happening. It's a new largest sculpture in the world that's taking place of, uh, of uh, Crazy Horse himself. And so we're in the northern part of that Black Hills, and in close to Spearfish, and you get out here. The best way, too, to start with would be to go to the website, you know, thermosphere.com, uh, and that will give you all the scoop of how to get out here. We'd love to have people come by and, and see the real stuff, you know. Uh, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, are you a social media guy? Do you have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Do you yep, do that whole I thing? Facebook, too, yeah. Oh, a cool. lot of Facebook. No Twitter. I tried Twitter. I just didn't know what to do with it. But Facebook, I can put a lot of images on, and then I can just talk about my work. So it's a really good place to keep up with what I'm working on. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, you may want to look into Instagram because it's a Facebook company, so you can actually use yeah. the same account. But, I mean, it's all image-based. Uh, that may be yeah. a really good way to promote what you do. 
that's a very good idea. Yeah. I've had people tell me that, too, and I just haven't gotten with it, you know. But now that you say it, I'll try it. Now that I said it, yeah. And then you'll forget <laughs> who I am when it becomes a super success or runaway hit on Instagram. I'm just kidding with you, Dick. Um, yeah. All right, so Dick Termis, the creator of the Termospheres. This is incredible. Again, I cannot promote this enough. It's great stuff. Check it out. Um, and thank you so much for blowing my mind with all your artistic concepts. This is... Uh, been way more mind-opening, um, non-drug-induced mind-opening than I thought it would be. So i got to thank you so much for that, Dick. Oh, thank you for letting me join you. You got it, man. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode is Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to check out every episode and follow the show on social media. You can check out the show's Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, all at the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And as I said before, Pinterest is going to be key to this. There's even some YouTube videos just to give you a sense of what we're talking about here. And if you like that, you can check out everything that I do at danieljglenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.